Hello, and welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions. As always, I'm your host, Robert Jean Pelleccio, and joining me today is a recent New York Ears playwright, James Armstrong. Thank you so much for coming in today, James. Oh, well, thank you for talking with me. Absolutely. Um, I, I say coming in today as if we're sitting in the same room, but, um, <laughs> well, it, well, it's audio. I guess I didn't need to tip the hat at all, but, um, well, welcome, welcome. Um, thank you so, so much for joining our ears program. Thank you for sharing, uh, your play Bones of the Sea with us. Um, I'm very excited to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but first, just for our listeners, uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to ask you just a little about you and your theater history. Uh, sure. So I've been writing plays for a very long time. Uh, I had a play that was done at the Abingdon Theatre Company called Foggy Bottom. Uh, more recently, I had a play done out at uh, Detroit Rep uh, called Capital. Um, and I'm actually getting ready to go down to North Carolina next month uh, because East Carolina University is going to be putting on a production of an adaptation I wrote of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, wow. So, Which is, by uh, the yeah, way, I... one of my favorite books of all time. It is... Um, oh, wonderful. I, Alice in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass, um, and Wizard of Oz, I have read more times probably than I'm year old. Um, <laughs> years old. Um, it's... No, it, it never quite gets old for me. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful story. Um, and it was a pleasure to adapt. Uh, and I've, I, adapting works of literature is something I've, I've done a lot of too. I, I actually wrote a, an adaptation of Moby Dick that was done at uh, Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater up on Cape Cod, which of course was the perfect setting for it. You know, it's Moby Dick. So right, right. There you are out on, on Cape Cod uh, in this old whaling town and, and doing a play about man- whaling. So, well, uh, it's funny, I'm actually, um, I don't normally do this uh, in podcast records, but I'm actually, for reference, I have your website pulled up right now, and uh, yeah. I love the um, the cast size of some of these adaptations. Uh, I work for Hedro Theater as a uh, teaching artist, I work oh, box, yeah. I, do, uh, I do a fair amount there, and they have a program they do with the um, resident actors, uh, it's called um, uh, Storytime. And mm-hmm. they basically they take two or three of them and they basically whittle down Peter Pan or Snow White or you know Alice in Wonderland like all those to two or three actors. Um, yeah. And actually, from from what it looks like, it looks like this is more youth oriented as well, um, which is amazing, which is fantastic. I I love I really love children's theater, so um, that's fantastic. Um, so I guess I will. Um, just jump off of there and ask um clearly as you said you've been writing for some time is there a particular style that you lean towards more often than others i see children's obviously bones of the sea is light at times but has more of a dramatic tone to it and that one has that one has more you know a more rounded cast versus the smaller you know kind of doubling up uh, so do you generally have something you lean towards mainly for uh, writing? Well, you know, the, the, the last uh, show of mine, Capital, that was done out at Detroit Rep is is a door-slamming farce. 
So uh, I, I guess I write quite a number of different things. Um, uh, a friend of mine, Josh Cohen, said, you know, the interesting things about your plays is that they're all different. Uh, <laughs> and, and incidentally, I'm now collaborating with Josh, who is a composer writing uh, a new musical. So <laughs> there's, oh, wow. there's something else that's completely different. Uh, well, I'm, just, I'm, I, I'm just blown yeah. away just on your website, just seeing you know that you don't just have a a play subsection there is full length adaptations musical one act short i mean it's audio like audio and video you clearly have your hand in many many different sides of the pot and i yeah i'm well after bones of the sea i'm actually very interested in looking into more of your work but i guess the next thing i could ask is you you clearly um, are in the most amazing way all over the place when it comes to writing. Do you have uh, any other theatrical hats that you like to switch off and on? Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of people um, ask me, oh, are, are you an actor? And I, I have acted professionally, but that's not what I do. Right, right. Uh, and uh, similarly, I have directed, but that's not really what I do. Uh, and I've you know, any, anyone who's a playwright is also a designer because right. uh, you, you get called upon to, you know, provide the costumes, provide the sets. Oh, can you help us out with the lights? So so I've, I, I feel like I've done just about everything. Um, but my 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 real love is, is writing. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that because it, it's definitely from what I've seen just talking to other playwrights and, you know, I, I've personally never written, but I've you know, seen both ends of it. I've been involved in with elephant room and with Hedro. Um, I've been involved in a number of workshops, seeing shows uh, just kind of build from the ground up and find their life. And I would say that you really can't design the perfect play without having that knowledge of the other areas that are going to go into it in mm. the end. Um, I, to name drop again, um, I, at Hedgerow, I worked with a playwright uh, named Jane McNeil uh, on many iterations of a new play that she's working on. And the play itself is definitely moving into a very solid state. But there was a little bit of, um, you know, just funny conversation of how many locations you could have at this play. Act one takes place at, in a sitting room. Act two takes place in a cabin. And in the original draft, there was another scene where they had to go to a country club and then come back to the cabin and it was one of those things where it's like one does it affect the story two you need to call your set designer and tell him he has to build a third completely different location <laughs> that is going to somehow sit yeah. in um so actually um i guess i can ask i, I kind of rambled for a bit there but uh have you uh ever found any areas that you've worked in before have influenced how you've written? Hmm. Uh, honestly, I think the, the the thing that influences me more than anything else is being an audience member. Uh, because we, when you're writing, you want to write something that you yourself would want to see. Oh, um, I, yeah, and, I like that. Uh, you know, having seen not just a lot of great plays, but seen a lot of not so good plays, you know, and, and, and yeah, sitting through all of that and saying, you know, 
what what can I do that's really going to be different? That that's really going to uh, really speak to people in a a way that uh, is going to be exciting and not just feel like what I'm watching right now. Uh, but uh, certainly, when, whenever you're you're working as an as an actor, you sort of get a sense of uh, how how you want those lines to sort of feel in your mouth, right? Uh, and you know, if you if you've ever had to work as a director or a producer, you certainly uh, are conscious of things like cast sizes. Uh, and, oh, absolutely. Um, oh my goodness, we need a costume change here. Is is the actor going to have enough time and that sort of a thing? So so that has to all sort of get written into it. You just you kind of reminded me of a of an, a show I saw years and years ago. It was a uh, it was a premiere, but I don't know that it was uh, in its final form yet. I, I forget it. I don't think it was a workshop, but I think it was somewhere in between that, um, if that makes sense. And uh, the uh, it was a wonderful piece. It was very powerful. A a former professor of mine who passed away shortly thereafter was in it and he was it was the first time i'd seen him act and it was fantastic the one issue as an audience member that we had was that the play had about four endings in act two because there there were many so we'd get there and you'd kind of breathe a sigh of relief and then the lights would come back on so you'd have to be oh no there's still four more scenes um left to go uh well that just kind of brings me around um now that we've talked about the different types of theater and how you absorb theater uh just brings around to bones of the sea um so we might as well just jump right in there uh before we start talking about the play uh would you like to kind of set us up for basically what the general idea of the piece is and then also if you could please introduce the scene that we're going to be hearing today sure uh so it's inspired by uh, real people, real story. Um, I have a long-standing interest in uh, the work of Charles Dickens, and it came across my attention that in one of the journals that Dickens edited, there was this piece uh, praising a young woman who um, had found quite a number of fossils, and in fact, at that time, probably about, about half of the, the fossils that were in the British Museum at the time had come from her. Uh, and uh, her name is Mary Annie. And uh, there have been a number of like children's books written about her because she actually got her start as a young girl. She and her brother uh, discovered uh, the first uh, ichthyosaur um and it really sort of revolutionized things because, uh, you know, here is this giant aquatic reptile uh, that doesn't exist anymore, and and people weren't quite sure what to do with that. This is before Charles Darwin, but the idea of some sort of change in the natural world, some sort of evolution was around. And uh, she did a tremendous amount to help people to see that. Uh, And she had 
very little formal education. Uh, she was a religious dissenter, um, not a part of the official Church of England, and uh, thus was kind of uh, shunned quite a bit during her lifetime. Uh, plus the fact that simply being a woman, there were a lot of people who were not going to listen to what she had to say, but she had grown up along the coast uh, in Lyme Regis where there are these huge cliffs that are slowly eroding into the ocean. And you can look up and you can basically see all of geological time right there in the cliff. And she was able to figure out a lot of things that people from Oxford and Cambridge had not. And they kept coming to her and getting her to explain uh, what all these things were that they were looking at. And uh, I, was, I was very fascinated by this figure, and uh, particularly in terms of this sort of intersection of gender, religion, and class. Uh, somebody right. who, who's really on the, the outside of things on multiple fronts. Uh, and I wanted to, to write about uh, what it's like to be coming at things from such an outsider perspective, but to earn a place at the table and get to a point where people are willing to listen to you. And uh, it so happened she had a, a lifelong friendship with um, this guy, Henry de la Beach, who uh, was a, a naturalist, um, came from the upper classes, and uh, they basically knew each other all their lives. And uh, that sort of became the the core of the story that that I wanted to tell. Wonderful. I'm a little embarrassed to just admit that I have been pronouncing his last name wrong the entire time I've been reading this play. <laughs> and can you just tell me a little bit about the scene we're going to hear today? Sure. This is a scene where uh, we're in a flashback. Uh, the the play sort of begins at the end, and then we flashback to see scenes of uh, these two characters in the past. And here they are. Uh, it's 1816, and they're a couple of teenagers uh, out on the beach. All right. Wonderful. Let's take a listen. Light shift. The sound of waves lashing against the shore. It's 1816. As Henry writes the letter, Mary Anning enters, young and determined. For the moment, she's 17 years old. She carries a bucket with a brush, a spoon, and a few other utensils. A pickaxe is tied around her waist. It's over here. The tide uncovered it on the side of the cliff. I need to stop this. Stop it all before it comes too late. We'll have to work fast to get it in before the tide. Floods, water coming, drowning everything, pouring, drenching, destroying, blotting out the light. But I can stop it. If I reach out, I can stop the flood. But my hands are cold and the water slips through. Henry! And to die, to die is not the worst. The worst is to be powerless. Well, are you coming or not? Henry looks at Mary. What if it's not safe? <laughs> Nothing's safe. I don't know. Either you're in or you're out. Can't be in between. No. I'm asking you to come. Are you going to help me or not? I... Well... Of course I'll help you, Mary. <laughs> Henry runs to her. He's suddenly a young man of 20 again. Take a look at this. Closely now. Here. 
Oh, I wish we had more light. Sun hasn't been out all summer. I know. I can't remember a year quite like this. Look close now. See this ridge? Is that the neck? Backbone. You can see the top of a rib there. You're right. Wish I had your eyes. How much of it left, though? Won't tell us a lot. Can you sell it? Mm, maybe. How do you find these things? Good eye. Must be the luckiest girl I know. <laughs> Taint luck. Told you. Gotta have a good eye. It looks like the tail's gone. I know. But look here. Best part. Right before where the tail would have been. At the end of his guts. A bezoar stone. What's a bezoar stone? What do you think? You find them at the end of the guts. Or sometimes just outside. I, I'm not following you. So he eats something, it travels through his guts, hardens, and then... It's shit! <laughs> These are stone, they call it. You're touching it. It's shit! <laughs> it's stone now. Could be a million years old. Besides, you can always sell Bezoar stones. Really? Hey! As long as you don't tell people what they are. Does your pastor know you sell people shit? Stop calling it that. Or that it's a million years old. I thought Eden was only built a few thousand years ago. Reverend Wheaton says we should all study geology. It shows us God's splendor. And keeps us out of trouble from the likes of you. Oh, I'm just teasing you. I know. Besides, I kind of like trouble. Me too. Hold on to it here. I'm going to try to chip it out. Mary takes out her pickaxe. Be careful. Of course I'll be careful. I'll sell this one to one of your kind. That's dinner for a week. I wish you wouldn't say that. Say what? My kind... Well, I don't have to say it, but it's still true, ain't it? No, I don't like to think it is. Rhoda's changing, Mary. Your family still owns slaves. In Jamaica. And then that's so far away. You know how I feel about this, Henry. I come off it. They're living souls. Reverend Wheaton says... I don't care what he says. I can't do anything about it. It's wrong. Of course it's wrong. Half the things England does are wrong. Then do something. I'm not even of age. You could say something. Nobody listens to me. Have you tried? Why, why do you think I got kicked out of Marlowe? I, I said something about taxes on working people and they called me a Jacobin. I, no one cares what I think, Mary. That's why I'm here in Lyme in the first place. You don't have to act like it's an exile. That's what they think it is. Exile to the coast, where there's nothing but sunshine and beaches and pretty girls that'll teach it. Well, there's beaches anyway. Sometimes sun. I don't know about pretty girls. No? Not that you'd want them. Pretty girl is never reliable. But, Mary, you're, you're very reliable. I certainly am. What, what does that mean? All I'm saying is, your kind, the kind that sends their sons to Marlowe, the kind that thinks a beach is a desert, the kind that marries pretty girls, they're different from the rest of us. Maybe that's why they think they can own a human soul and not use a, lose a moment's sleep. So what do you think of me? Well, your family does own slaves, so what do you think of yourself? What difference does it make? No one cares what I think. Not true. Nobody. Not my mother, not Mr. Taylor. Nobody. I care. I know. Listen, I didn't... You want me to tell you more about Bezoar stones? Bezoar... The fossil. I can't believe we're talking well, about... Well... But it's... Yes, it is. All right. All right. Fine. Compared to before, this is a far more pleasant topic of conversation. <laughs> then listen up. I'm all ears. A Bezoar stone can be broken open, and when you do that, sometimes you find stuff inside. Like what? Fish bones. Sometimes scales. Scales. You can actually see the scales. Sometimes. That's amazing. Joe and I found one with an ichthyosaur. Thought, though Joe thought it was a crocodile at the time. Anyway, we found this Bezoar stone right at the end of his guts, ready to pop out. No. So we take the Bezoar stone and we crack it open, and there's this piece of fish bone turned to rock, and right next to it, these scales, fish scales, turned to rock. And we're looking at it, and I think this was some.
somebody's lunch. Millions of years ago, this was somebody's lunch. And now here I am looking at it like that fish had just been caught this afternoon. How did that make you feel to be looking at that? I don't know. Like a spy, I guess. A spy on some creature millions of years ago, only he couldn't know I was spying on him because I wasn't spying on him until after he was dead. Jesus. No cursing. I, you can't spy on a dead monster a million years old and just say no cursing. Why not? I mean, you know, Jesus, it's a million years old. Almost incredible, isn't it? We spy on this one? Break it open, I mean? Break it? Uh, I don't know. Why not? Most people want to buy a Bezoar stone hole. But it could have scales inside. Might, but might not. Oh, come on, Mary, I want to see. I know you do, it's just... What? Did it make you happy? Happy. To, to spy on a creature a million years old. I don't know about you, Mary, but that's my idea of heaven. All right, then. Let's take a crack. Let's take it back. Excuse me. All right, then. Let's take it back first. I want you to be very careful when you crack it open. Hooray for Beezer Stones. Let's go. Wait a minute. Are you forgetting something? What? Isn't there something you'd like to say first? What should I say? William enters and speaks over his shoulder to someone following him. You're welcome. Never mind. Let's go home. Mary exits. And we're back. And as I pointed out to you before we started the interview, it was the first instance I have ever seen the word Bezor outside <laughs> of a Harry Potter book, which I, which is definitely showing where my preferences lie. But um, this is a this is a very very well written piece. I'm just going to start there. Um, Thank you. So the first thing I want to ask is, before we get into anything about story, pacing, style, any of that, you had mentioned earlier your, just your fascination with her as a person. And what mm-hmm. I have found is whenever I have seen a piece about a real person or a historical person, anything like that, there is always a challenge in bringing kind of a sense of drama or a sense of pacing and flow to a true story because there's there's little manipulation that you can do with that did you find that it was a little more of a challenge to write for someone who actually existed or were you able to approach her the same way you would approach most of your characters well, the challenge when writing about a real person is to decide which story you want to tell. Because right. nobody's life is only one story. There, there are millions and millions of stories in our lives. And uh, often a challenge that people have is if, if you get really obsessed about one person, is you want to tell all those different stories. Right. And, uh, and that's generally not a good idea. Generally, you want to just tell the one. Right. And, Un- unless uh, unless you are going to set it against a rap and hip hop background and span the, about <laughs> thirty years of the life of this individual. Um, no. Okay. Well, e- even then, I mean, Miranda had to cut an awful lot oh, out yeah, of yeah. Hamilton. <laughs> He I, really, really wanted to tell the story of the whiskey rebellion. He really did, <laughs> but he couldn't. Because yeah, it would have been, you know, five hours long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, but um, what I thought was most interesting about, um, you know, reading this piece was you did manage to actually 
fit in a fair amount of her life in the span of a very, very small window of things happening in real time. And that's I, I guess that's that's the other challenge with writing, you know, historical stories or real stories is, you know, it's you you can't really do a lot of manipulation with how events unfolded. So what I loved about this was that the events that unfold with her history and you know the the build up to her relationship um with it was Henry I believe was the name. Yeah. Uh her relationship with Henry um are seen in kind of quasi flashbacks where he's kind of stepping in and out of it and it reminded me uh, you you've probably gathered a bit about me from my Harry Potter reference but I'm also an avid Doctor Who fan um, and it it reminded me of a uh, a BBC America promo for season 7 with the phrase every story has a beginning a middle and an ending just not necessarily in that order. Yeah. Uh, so what I thought was really, you know, intriguing about this was the order of events, just looking at the stage direction, seeing what year we're in now and what age you're in now. Um, to a certain point, it was pretty linear um, until it wasn't. So, yeah. I, you know, I kind of had gotten comfortable reading it uh, and I wish now reading it that I had been at that reading in New York to hear it unfold. But, you know, I kind of got lulled into, okay, and then this is going to be the next chapter of her life that leads up. And suddenly we were back to an even earlier point in her life that had a better context having known the things about her future that we knew. Um, so how did you kind of plot out that story? You are, You already said you had to kind of I don't want to say cherry pick, that's the wrong term, but you had to basically be a little conservative with how much of her story and how much of her history unfolded. Um, so how... I actually think cherry picking is probably a, a good term to use because uh, you, you, you pick just the parts that are the ones that you want to tell. Right. And and there's, there's I think, a, a different thing that you're trying to do when you're trying to write a play versus when you're trying to say, write a scholarly biography of somebody, <laughs> uh, you know, and like we, we, we mentioned Hamilton, um, you know, I was know, just going to say, I would, there, like, I would love to, I would love to read the full score of what yeah. he was going to put in. And I, I have, I already have the, the coffee table book um, with the, yeah. th- it's two other cabinet battles and like another scene with Jefferson, like all that, like I would, I would kill to have, the full history of Hamilton just written in verse. But sorry, back, <laughs> well, back, course, back to your play. Back to... Yeah. Uh, but, but, but yeah, you, 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 you that, that story, when, when you're writing a biography, you're trying to tell everything and trying to be, you know, intellectually honest about all of the sort of pros and cons of something. Uh, but if, if you're, if you're telling a story, you know, whether you're, hero is Hamilton or Mary Anning, you, you, you sort of, you, you pick what you want to tell and you, you just tell the things that are helping to tell that story uh, because you're, you're doing something different than, than say writing a scholarly biography. Uh, and for, for me, one of the joys of this play was, as you, you said, putting it out of order it mm-hmm. is finding a sort of emotional through line 
that is not necessarily the chronological through line. And so we, we sort of skip around in time. Uh, and what was important to me was that it made emotional sense. Right. So that, uh, you know, people got sent back into uh, these flashbacks for very specific reasons uh, about, you know, what was going on in the present day. And then the flashbacks in turn caused them to act differently in the present day. So what was the process um, of actually arranging that? Or did you basically pick each of the events first that you were going to show and then in the context of the story just kind of decide which one would fit best at what point? Well, I, I, I knew that there were certain scenes that had to happen at some point. Right. And then it became more of a matter of how do I lay them out to build emotional intensity? So, you know, the, the scene we heard a bit from occurs early on. So this is, we have to introduce these characters to the audience. We, we've got to let the audience know who these people are and, uh, and, and what their rapport is. Uh, but that is not the first scene in the story chronologically. Uh, right, right. We, we actually get 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 later on the 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 beginning of the second act begins with a scene that's actually much earlier than the scene, uh, and so I was thinking, all right, what are what are the, the the scenes that are going to introduce people, are going to get the audience to sort of like these characters and get to know them. And what are the scenes that are going to build emotional intensity? And then my, my climax is going to be when, uh, you know, we're at the point of the, the greatest emotional intensity. Yeah. And it was, it was very, very, you know, it was very gripping because, um, you know, just, just that thought of, you know, every time, every time I turned a page or, more realistically swiped a page uh because of yeah. how i was reading it um it was you know i got i got a little bit more of the context and it it kind of allowed me not knowing anything about her prior mm -hmm. to your play it kind of it painted a very very vivid picture of who this person was and how she would have interacted um and i i absolutely loved seeing that another thing i would love to say is um, in terms of the flashbacks, what I what I thought was really powerful. I I don't have the ability to read a play or see a play without in the back of my head thinking of how I would direct it. And yeah. what I thought was really a challenge for reading this one is that I couldn't figure out right away how I would stage it. And hmm. I just just in a, just in terms of how do I differentiate the flashbacks from the main action where does she enter where does she leave and from what i've observed about plays i've absorbed and experienced is if i struggle while reading it to think of how i would direct it it's a sign that the play is worthwhile because okay. uh because i don't want to see or read a play where all the answers are laid out for me i love that challenge and i think that that's the beauty of theater and that's the beauty of a piece like this is that you know it, it kind of it challenges you to kind of break the status quo 
because yeah. it's it's not a linear piece and it's not um a piece that necessarily relies on the characters being in the same space at the same time but still having an impact on the way the scenes are unfolding mm. so now that we've kind of talked a little bit about the actual creation of the piece um I want to ask about our program and how you initially got involved with Elephant Room Productions and uh, how it may have helped shape this piece. Uh, yeah, um, I'm trying to remember how I first uh, heard of you guys. I think I, I got a referral through a friend and I just sent the script off and uh, they said, yeah, we want to get uh, a room full of actors to read it and we'll record it and send you the recording, which I found a really novel approach. Uh, you know, most places they, they want you to be there in the room. And uh, what they, they said to me, which makes perfect sense is, you know, sometimes actors are going to be a lot more uninhibited when the playwright's not right there. Uh, and so they, they read through it. I got the recording, they, they discussed it, um, and were able to, to sort of have their own, uh, discussion on their own without the pressure of, you know, the, the playwright hovering over them there. And, uh, then, uh, I was able to discuss it with, uh, some folks afterwards and, and that was helpful. And I found that, to me, that is generally the most enticing thing about this program. It's that idea of the uninhibited feedback, um, you know, without the fear of, you know, I, I don't want to say offending, because that's not our goal. But, you know, it, it kind of just gives the actors just a raw opportunity to just spill forth anything that uh, they thought about the play. Um so in yeah. terms in terms of the feedback, did you find that having that kind of separated feedback was helpful in how you're shaping the piece? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I've I've already begun rewrites. Uh, there there were some things that I heard that I was you know kind of expecting, and other things. Oh, I wasn't expecting that at all. So. Uh, so yeah, it's been helpful. Nice. Well, we have obviously loved having it. I, I am very, very enthralled by this piece. Um, and I am very excited to see where it goes next. Offhand, do you have a plan for where to take this piece next or what, uh, the next stage of this piece is going to be? I'm not sure right now, uh, but I would love to see it get up on its feet very soon. Nice. Well, we're always here. Um, what? Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Just to kind of wind down from our kind of heavy-duty uh, play talk, um, I always like to wrap up with a nice, fun little question, usually involving alcohol, because as our as I said <laughs> earlier, as I said to you before, our tagline uh, is "Drink theater responsibly." Um, so. I'd like to ask if you could... This is my favorite question to ask. It's come up on way too many episodes, and I, I know that Lauren is going to probably ask me to come up with something new soon, but it's my favorite question to yeah. ask nonetheless. Um, if you could share a drink 
with any character from a play, who would it be and why? And bonus points for what drink would you share with them? Oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm immediately thinking of all the people I don't want to share a drink with. Uh, you know, Hamlet, last time he took a drink of wine, bad things happened. Um, it's funny, actually, I, um, a former company member um, once did say Hamlet for the person he would want to drink with. <laughs> That's not going to end well. It, it, is not, it, it consistently has not. <laughs> Don't, don't go drinking with Romeo and Juliet either. <laughs> yeah, unless you tell uh, them what's in the bottle first. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, goodness. Uh, if 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 you if you're gonna be going out drinking with somebody, I, I guess you you probably want to pick Falstaff. He's he's the fun one, though. You probably are gonna regret that it is, in the morning. That is such a unique answer. <laughs> That is very. That is the most unique answer I've ever gotten to that question. I'm very proud. Um, well, I won't repeat mine. I've because uh, I've said my my number one. Well, I, mean, I will repeat it for you because you haven't heard it yet. But my number one person to have a drink with would be Mame Dennis. Um, oh, okay, and, yeah, but, I can see that. Um, but I guess uh, a secondary person to have a drink with, um, uh, if we're talking strictly the world of theater would be uh probably ron weasley um okay just because uh although similar to the hamlet problem there is a line in uh there is a line in cursed child where he implies that uh he doesn't hold his alcohol very well um yeah just, just have a butter beer with him yeah it's a i don't remember the line offhand but it's it's something <laughs> something along the lines of he wants to renew his vows with hermione because of something that happened because he drank too much at the wedding. Um, oh dear. So, um, but yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, well, James, thank you so, so, so much for uh, talking to me today. And if you ever have any other place you want to, any other level you want to take bones of the sea to, or any other piece you want to send our way, please, please do, because I would love to read more of your work. Great. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. And for anyone else listening, any aspiring playwrights or any current playwrights, uh, please remember, as always, uh, you can send your piece to erpsubmissions at gmail.com. Remember, as always, every story deserves to be heard, so join our elephant herd today. Thank you very much, and until next time, have a great night.